In fact, God's disclosure of his plan is made to Abraham. With the death angels on their way to Sodom, verse 16, God poses the question in his mind, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? A certain reference to the outgoing judgment that is about to befall Sodom and its wicked people. I'm going to do something. Should I keep it a secret from Abraham? And it's clear from the context that God then proceeds to give us, the readers, several reasons as to why he could not keep the destruction of Sodom a secret from Abraham. Reason number one. Abraham is about to become a great and powerful nation. Verse 18. And the geography of his nation will include Sodom and Gomorrah and the other plain cities in the Jordan Valley. They are going to be annihilated from the face of the earth. Abraham ought to know then (laughs) that his future inheritance will not include these cities. Though they're there now. So... God determines to tell him. Reason number two. All nations on earth will be blessed through him was the promise. We've noted that on numerous occasions. This is the promise of God to send the Holy Messiah through Abraham's ancestry. And it is not compatible with holiness to tolerate overt wickedness that was going on in Sodom. So, God has to do something about Sodom. Reason number three, verse 19. God has chosen Abraham with the full intent that he will, here I'm reading scripture, direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what's right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. May I just say that the wickedness of Sodom was no place to raise godly children. But it was a place ripe for the justice of God to purge the Jordan plain of all this immorality. So God has determined to strike the epicenter of evil that existed in Palestine at this time. So these are all very good reasons as to why God would not choose to keep secret his intentions toward Sodom. But there's one other, which I believe overshadows all of these, and that is that God acknowledges Abraham to be his friend. The writer of Chronicles asserts, O our God, did you not drive out? the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. They have lived in it, have built it, 
in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us, and you will save us. Second Chronicles 20, verses 7 and following. In the New Testament, James, arguing for the importance of a living faith, asserts, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. James, two, James 5, verse 23. Now, if we bring this truth to bear upon the narrative today, is it not the underlying impetus for God's full disclosure of his intent to destroy Godom, Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other wicked cities of the plains? Is it not in keeping with that that Abraham, his friend, would God would confide in him what he's about to do? Friends do that, don't they? They are even willing to share the secret thoughts of their hearts which they would not otherwise broadcast to the rest of the world. Well, he's my friend. Of course I told him what's on my mind. Notice how God reasons with himself. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Hmm. Shall I hide from my friend what I'm about to do? The world doesn't need to know my thoughts, my plans. But I ought to be able to take my friend into my confidence. Let the wicked be surprised by my judgment. But I can't bring about judgment on a city in which Abraham's nephew resides without alerting Abraham to my plans. Now that is all implied, of course, as to why God would do some of this. Verse 20 gives God's decision. So in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now verse 20, no, I will not hide my intent. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and so grievous that I will go down and see what is happening and how bad is the outcry. Sodom and Gomorrah are ripe. For the judgment of God. But those cities existed in the Jordan Plain. Which was the geography for Abraham's inheritance. By the way, this is anthropomorphic language. What do I mean by that? Anthropos is the Greek word for man. Morphicus from uh, the Greek word to change or to morphous to go into other situations. 
So God is speaking in the language of men to clarify things. I mean, think about this, because does God need to come down from heaven to see if Sodom's wickedness matches the outcry? Well, that's ridiculous. No, the outcry speaks for itself. Does God need to come down to investigate the people of Sodom to see if they are innocent or guilty of their sexual depravity? Again, no, because God knows all things. So it's anthropomorphic language. In other words, the writers of Scripture write in a way that will be understood by the human heart and mind as to what God Almighty who thinks differently, is doing and saying. Actually, the scripture says, Jeremiah 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, whoa, and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Or again in the Revelation, Jesus exposes the immorality of Jezebel, saying, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Revelation 2, verse 21 and following. The writer of Hebrews chimes in. Hebrews 4, 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Boy, that's a verse. We ought to, just, we ought to put that one on the refrigerator. I mean it. Let me read it again. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. And you think that's bad? That God sees the overt acts of sinful men. It gets worse. Paul says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Wow, not just the deeds, but the thinking behind the deeds. Why they did what they did. We don't have that ability. We make guesses sometimes. But because of that, we guess wrong lots of times. There's one thing more here before we move on, and that is that because Abraham is God's friend, he knows God's intent, saying, verse 23, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 23. 
Think about this. All God said to Abraham initially was, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see. That's all God said to Abraham. And from that simple statement, Abraham has surmised that God is about to unleash a judgment so terrible that it will sweep away, verse 23, those wicked cities. He's figured it out. So what I'm saying in this is this. Not only does God know Abraham, but Abraham knows God. Abraham knows God. He knows that God's holy nature is such that he cannot, he will not, permit Sodom and Gomorrah to promote its brand of wicked immorality with impunity. No, judgment is about to fall. Abraham knows this. He is concerned that his nephew Lot will once again be caught up in the repercussions of Sodom's sin. So, Abraham pleads with God to forego judgment for the sake of the righteous. Verse 24, Abraham said to God, What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Uh, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? And without giving God a chance to respond, Abraham presses his case saying, verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing. God didn't give his answer yet. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now Abraham is doing more here than pleading with God to spare Adam, or Sodom. He is reasoning with God that it would be out of God's moral character to treat righteous and God-fearing people with the same outpouring of judgment that befalls the wicked. Yes, judge the wicked. That's okay. That's just. But it cannot possibly be just to have the righteous become collateral damage when the fireballs begin to fall from heaven. Are you going to separate this some way? I wonder, would you know enough about the character of God to be able to make an appeal like this concerning some disclosure that God made to you? Could you argue with God and feel perfectly safe challenging his intended actions? Would you dare to pit your sense of right and wrong against God's and suggest that if God followed through and destroyed the righteous with the wicked, that would not be right? You're going to tell God, God, that's not right. You, can, uh, you can't do that. You know, men ignorant of God question his justice all the time. They do. But they do so from the assumed position that they themselves know what is good and right and just. Their hearts are filled with the bias and pride 
which questions God in an accusatory way. To indict God for misconduct. You can't do that. What kind of God does that? But Abraham is not doing this. Abraham is appealing to God on the basis of God's own character. God's own sense of right and wrong, knowing full well that God does not place all mankind in the same bowl of soup. There are the righteous because of God's saving grace. And there are the wicked whose father is the devil. And so it is as Jesus told the Pharisees, you belong to your father the devil. And you want to do the deeds of your father's desire. John 8 verse 44. And within context, their deed that they wanted to do was what? Kill Jesus. And then Jesus says, Abraham did not do such things, you Pharisees. You claim to be Abraham's children. He would not do such things. Well, what was God's response to Abraham's reasoning? Verse 26. Okay. If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. I I think this is outstanding. God did not ridicule Abraham for posing this scenario. Spare the city if you find 50. Oh, no. God agreed to Abraham's proposal. I think (laughs) this encouraged Abraham to be a little more assertive. Well, what if you only find 45 in Sodom that are righteous verse 28 what what if the number is only 40 verse 29 what if only 30 verse 30 what about 20 verse 31 you see what he's doing Trying to find the least common denominator (laughs) that he can get from God in terms of hope for the righteous. In every one of these scenarios, God responds saying, I will not destroy it, Sodom. I won't. So this emboldened Abraham to pose, I can just see him, one more <laughs> scenario, just one more. Verse 32, sensing that he may have worn out his welcome, Abraham says in verse 32, uh, may the Lord not be angry with me. <laughs> um, let me speak just once more, what if only 10 can be found there? 10 righteous. And wonder of wonders, God agreed. Verse 33 tells us 
And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. How could Abraham go home? <laughs> I'm thinking about this. How could he go home satisfied, ending his plea with God at ten righteous people? He stops there. He's been doing the math, I think. Well, there's Lot. And then there's Lot's wife. He has two unmarried daughters. So now we're up to four. Lot's two sons-in-law pledged to marry his daughters. Now we're up to six. Surely there must be four others somewhere in that city who had come to trust God through the outreach of Lot's family. One would have hoped that that was the case. But even Lot's own sons-in-law considered Lot to be joking when he encouraged them to flee for their lives before Sodom was destroyed. You can read about it. Chapter 19, verse 14. Ha! What a joke! But Abraham went to bed that night assured in his own mind that his nephew Lot and Lot's family would act as the preservative necessary to fireproof the entire city of Sodom. But he was sadly mistaken. Brethren, if you want your friends and family to spend eternity with you in heaven, you need to do more than just pray for them. By all means, pray for them. But without faith, it is impossible for sinners to please God. And from where does faith come? Paul tells us, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Romans 10 verse 17. In other words, people have to be exposed to the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, because hearing is one of the means that God uses <coughs> to instill saving faith in his people. <coughs> you see, Lot came across to his relatives as a jokester. Because somewhere along the way, he had not explained that people need to be saved from God's wrath to come, and that such salvation is only found through repentance of sin and faith in God as Savior. If Lot were so convinced that the Sodomites would be destroyed. Why did he make his home in Sodom? Which he did, by the way. You see, he compromised his faith by living among the very sinners who had the mark of destruction upon them. So he lacked 
credibility as a prophet. I mean, who's going to take him seriously about impending judgment when he himself resides in Sodom's city limits? Brethren, prayer without exposure to gospel truth is just wishful thinking. That's it. The writer of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4 verse 12. The word of God does that. And it is that conviction that drives sinners to Jesus for pardon and forgiveness. People must hear the gospel to be saved. And that's not the same as praying for them. Now we need to pray for them. But give them the word of God and give them the gospel and then pray that the word of God will have an effect upon their hearts and change their minds. Now, what are some of the lessons we learn from this account? Well, number one, in Christ, God treats us as his friends. In John 15, Jesus gives us a very similar parallel to what we have in our text. Jesus was about about to have the judgment of God fall on him as he was made sin for his people. His disciples had been with him through thick and thin, sometimes suffering the same animosity of the people that was heaped upon Jesus. There could be no other way. John 14, John 15, John 16, those three chapters were Jesus' last words to his disciples before the judgment of God fell on them. But he refused to go to his death without taking the disciples into his confidence. We know that the understanding of the disciples about Jesus' death was sporadic at best. What I mean is, and this sounds contradictory, they they knew, yeah, he's, he's, he's talked about the cross, So they knew, but they didn't know. So Jesus explained. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. That's pretty clear, don't you think? You're my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants. A servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. John 15, verse 13 and following. Change here. You're not a servant anymore. You're a friend. In John 10, speaking of his disciples as sheep, a little different analogy here, but he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Here you go. He goes on, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
John 10, verse 14 and following. So using sheep to explain the family setting, Jesus assures his disciples that they know him and he them, the very basis for friendship and interaction. John writes, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Hmm. 1 John 4, 7. I don't think it's presumption on our part to say that we are the friends of God. We believers are the friends of God. We believe him, we follow him, we love him, we know his workings and why. Of course we're his friends. Paul says it's written, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 and following. In other words, the friends of Christ know what the master's up to. We do. And that sounds arrogant to people of the world. Oh, you're, oh, yeah, yeah. You know the mind of Christ. You know what he's up to. Well, we know it because we have the scriptures that tell it to us. And we believe those scriptures and those words of Christ. You don't. Therein is the difference. Secondly, God alerts us to his impending judgment, giving us time to warn our friends and relatives if, and this is a big if, if they will listen. Hmm. Do we really expect the unbelievers to heed warnings of impending judgment from God when they have not given a hearing to the many other teachings of Christ in the scriptures? Maybe yes, maybe no. God's grace must do its work before any unbeliever listens to any admonition from the scriptures. You know that. But the point in all this is that God alerts us, his people... And when we are forewarned, as the saying goes, to be forewarned is to be what? Forearmed. A warning, if heeded, permits people to prepare for the worst. If those people will listen. And God forewarns his people of the bad times coming. It's in the scripture everywhere. For example, Jesus told his disciples, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing here where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to enter the house to take anything out of it. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers 
And pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now. And never to be equaled again. Mark 13, verse 14 and following. That's what's coming. We'll be told up front. You only got one thing to do when you see that happening. Run. Hide. Leave. There is a day of trouble coming which is so serious, it is so horrendous, so imminent, that it will rival Lot's warning to his family to flee Sodom. There will be no time to collect the necessities of life, your clothes, your shoes, your food, just enough time to flee, to head for the hills, literally. Only the discerning will acknowledge the danger. Only those who heed will profit from the warnings. But if you're the messenger, then, you, then you've done your part. God told Ezekiel, chapter 3, verse 19, If you do warn the wicked man, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin. But you will have saved yourself. You know what that says? It says, you're not responsible for the response of the gospel you give out. You're just responsible to do it. And the hearer is responsible for their reaction. I don't believe that garbage. Now here we go with another holy roller. You Christians are all alike. Got your head in the clouds. You're no earthly good. On and on. We are mocked, laughed at, ridiculed. But God says, you tell them anyway. They will die in their sin, but you will have saved yourself. Thirdly, wickedness has its own voice that cries out to God for judgment. People don't know this. God did not have to exit heaven and go down on an exploratory journey to discover what was happening in the urban area of Sodom. No one had to inform God of the immorality, the hatred, the rape, the murder that plagued that city. No. There was an outcry from Sodom that sang a sullen and depraved tune. And God heard it. Came directly from the perpetrators even we mere men and women know what's happening in our country's large urban cities don't you know don't you watch the news so i don't like the news well i don't like it either sometimes but i need to know what's going on the rape the bludgeoning to death of innocent people returning home from work 
People are robbing them of a few dollars. The prostitution, the embezzlers of corrupt America, the child molesters, the kidnappers, the street gangs who vandalize property because they're bored. We know, we know. We don't like what we see, but we know. David knew. David prayed. They repay me evil for the good and leave my soul forlorn. Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and I humbled myself with fasting. And when my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my friend or a brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. He's telling us how he reacted to people that were in trouble when God's judgment fell upon them. And he's saying, I wasn't gloating and happy and all of that. I was... I prayed for them and I mourned for them and I tried to help them the best I could. He goes on. But when I stumbled, when I stumbled, <laughs> they gathered in glee. The wicked. Attackers gathered against me when I was unaware. They slandered me without ceasing. Like the ungodly, they maliciously mocked me. They gnashed their teeth at me. Oh Lord, how long will you look on? How long? Rescue my life from their savages. My precious life from these lions. Psalm 35 verse 12 and following. So David sees and he is sure that God sees too. Because this kind of wickedness cries out to God for judgment and God while patient to a fault can even become the enemy of his own people woe to the obstinate children declares the Lord to those who carry out plans that are not my plans forming an alliance but not by my spirit heaping sin upon sin Isaiah 30 verse 1 sometimes that's what we do sin upon sin When I was a kid, the lowest of the low on the totem pole, in our thinking, was the tattletale. <laughs> tattletale, tattletale, you're nothing but a tattletale. You told mom that it was me who used her new frying pan to make mud pies in the driveway. May I say, brethren, God needs no tattletales to inform him of the evil that men do. Wickedness has its own voice. Wickedness cries out to God for judgment. And then fourthly, be concerned about your spiritual family. Your spiritual family, when judgment is just around the corner and plead for their rescue. Whatever compromises Abraham's nephew Lot had made 
to live in Sodom. He was yet a righteous man and part of the kingdom of God. And I know that's hard for us to take. And if I didn't have scripture for it, I wouldn't say it. Peter tells us, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul. This is our third time God calls him righteous by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. 2 Peter 2, verses 6 through 9. Probably wouldn't believe that unless it was in the book, but it is in the book. Because we don't think that Lot was very righteous. But God says, oh yes, he was. was a lot old enough and learned enough to know that Sodom's environment would in fact be a blight on his soul? Oh yeah, he, he was old enough. Did he sense that the environment of Sodom, the things he saw and heard, were not wholesome food for his eye gate or his ear gate? Yes. Did he ignore the warnings of God's word? on associating with people of such immoral and ungodly character? Again, the answer is yes. He did all these things and more. Then, then how can God call him righteous? And why should we concern ourselves with Christians like this, who have obviously ignored some of the basic tenets of the faith? Well, God can call him righteous because righteousness before God is his gift credited to sinners by faith on the merit of Jesus' blood in righteousness. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. Lot was not righteous in and of himself. We are declared righteous by God when Personally, we're not. God sees us as righteous because he sees us as being what we are in Christ. Paul words it this way. It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. I think we really got to get a grasp. On what Christ has done for us. But personally. Personally we do not always live out. Our position in Christ. We do stupid things. We do sinful things. We need clear-headed fellow believers to pull us from the fire of our own our own making. This is not only necessary 
but commendable. Let me read it for you. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James 5, verse 19 and 20. Abraham pleaded for Lot when he kept reducing the number from 50 to 10 with the hope that God would spare Sodom to save Lot. In actuality, God destroyed Sodom and spared Lot. And in a large part, in answer to Abraham's feverish appeal. Brethren, we are not only saved by grace, but we carry on, we live the Christian life by grace. In God's grace, you may be the very impetus God uses to stir a wayward brother to repent and get back on the right track. Do not undervalue your role in edifying fellow believers in Christ. I think we all need warnings. We all need rebuke. We all need correction. We all need instruction so that we do not get caught in sin and compromise as was Lot. And I wish this account was all that needs to be said about Lot, but oh, there's a lot more coming that's even worse. I just tell you that. And yet God calls him righteous. Then too, if you're here today lost and adrift in your own sinful thoughts, arguing with God, resisting his spirit, posing his truth, proud of who you are, but ashamed of Jesus, the Lord issues this warning. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Mark 8, verse 38. Think of the ludicrous of this. You're ashamed of Jesus while you live in an adulterous and sinful generation? We should be proud to name Christ as Savior and humble that he would dare to call us his children and grant us a place to sit with him in glory. How marvelous is that salvation. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word and praise you for it. Thank you for Abraham. intervention with regard to Lot is remarkable. There's more to come, but we will learn more. Righteousness is the gift of God that you give to your people. If we're righteous, if we're called righteous, if we dare to be called the friend of God, 
we do not need to pat ourselves on the back and think of ourselves more highly, Paul says, than we ought to think. We just shouldn't do that. That shows we don't know what we think we know. Grace, what does grace mean? Oh Lord, it means you have chosen people who do not deserve mercy. You have chosen people that deserve the same kind of judgment that fell on Sodom. Yet because of your grace, because you are a merciful God to whom you will, you have made us your children. You've brought us to the table to be with you in your glory. Help us to see that. Honor your word today. Help us. We're going to gather around the communion table in just a few minutes, Lord. And what do we do at the communion table? We remember what it costs God to make us righteous, to declare us righteous. I pray that you will help us to be thankful in terms of that. And we'll praise you. We know what has been accomplished. We think we know. We don't always grasp the depth of it. But the cross was no accident. It was an on-purpose plan from God to save sinners. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 590 in Trinity. Now I've already alluded to it. We'll take a, a break and then regather for the Lord's table. And then there's a dinner downstairs to follow. So lots going on today. From the Trinity Hymnal, number 590. Let's stand. Stretch.
take a seven to ten minute break when you hear the music, come back in for our communion service. <laughs> 